You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. It was early 2004 when I met him for the first time, and I can see him right now sitting in his chair waiting for me. He was all dressed up and ready to talk about our cold case. His eyes were fading, but honey, not his memory. James O. Ponder retired from the FBI in 1976, but in his 30 years, it was stuff of legendary status. He was one of the ones that tracked down James Earl Ray after the assassination of Dr. King. He went over to his apartment and he found the maps. So he knew he's headed to Memphis. He had that confirmed. He also worked on the Mary Mackle case, the young woman that was put in the box with limited air and buried alive, the Emory University student. He was one of the ones that found her with the straw sticking up. He also worked the Rosenberg spy case. But the reason I met with him was the Mary Shotwell Little case out of Atlanta. And it was the case that he just could not let go. He said, you know, of all the things that I've done, Mary's case is the one that stuck with me. I even exchanged Christmas cards with her mother for 40 years. Some cases, you just can't let go. Our guest today, Detective Joseph Giacalone, spent 20 years with NYPD. Now y'all, I've had a lot of people on Zone 7, and there's a lot of people in my Zone 7 that have a bio that'll just knock your socks off. But I want you to know before I start listing all of his accolades and successes, this is a snapshot of this man. He won the Medal of Valor. He attained the rank of Sergeant. Sergeant over the detective squad, Bronx, cold case squad. He was the commanding officer over the 110th Precinct Detective Squad in Queens. He was the director of the New York Police Department Homicide School. 
He's a professor. He's an author. He literally wrote the cold case handbook. I not only respect this man, but I tell you, he is a decent and fine person. I want to welcome Joseph Giacalone to Zone 7. You know, you and I first met at CrimeCon, and I was knocked out then. Just your way of approaching a case, the way you talk with people, the way you work a room, it's something to watch. Um, and I often tell young CSIs and young detectives, if you don't know how to talk to people, practice, try to learn how to do it. But you do it with such ease. Well, it's something that uh, I have worked on over my years, right? We know that communication is a skill that definitely uh, is something that you can work on. And I try to hone that craft throughout my uh, over two decades in the New York City Police Department. I always tell my students specifically, if you are standing online somewhere in a store and all of a sudden the person behind you starts giving you their life story without asking, you have a gift there. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely right. My sisters say to me sometimes, do crazy people just seek you out? I hope so, because it is, it's a gift and it's not something I'm going to take lightly. I love it when people just want to talk to me. So you have a case that we need to talk about because like Agent Ponder, this case sticks with you. This is something you cannot let go. This is something you will not forget about. So why don't you tell us about Charles Taylor and Stephen Mason? Certainly. I mean, this is a case that we had when I was in the Bronx and we had actually thousands of open cases. And there is a case that sticks with every investigator, no matter what you do, whether it's in a homicide or detective squad or specifically a cold case squad. But that's where I had found myself in 2000. So here's where what we're dealing with. So this case came across my desk and it was like, there are certain things that attract you to something. And for me, it was, first of all, the victim's age. So you had a double homicide, a double stabbing. And you had, a, you had two young boys. One was six and one was eight. So Charles was six and his stepbrother, Stephen, was eight. And that was the first thing because in New York City, we have the accordion file, so to speak. So you have this big like banker's file or a box, and that's how we do our cases. So it's unlike the, uh, the LAPD who has like the murder book and everything nice and simple. We have a big giant mess. And the issue that comes down to is that I always say the, the hardest thing is finding the case. So we came across this case and I saw the ages and right away I said, well, listen, this one is something that we need to look at. Like everything else, you try to find those solvability factors that get in there. But this case was dated all the way back onto February 21st, 1985. And it happened in 2000 Valentine Avenue. And the boys were both stabbed. They were actually, their throats were cut. And they had some other injuries that I won't go into detail on because there's only things that the killer would know. And the issue that comes down to is that this is still an open case. The boys were found at the bottom of the staircase to the trash compactor room. To me, that was also another significant part of what the killer was probably thinking at the time, you know, using that location. The boys were supposed to be going to school and they never made it to school. Now, the school isn't too far from where... The, uh, the house is located. It's actually just through the apartment complex, make a left turn, and it's like another block or two to the school. So they had a very short distance to walk. The issue that comes down to is that they never make it there. And there was a big search going on for the police all hours of the night until they finally discovered the children at the bottom of the staircase of the trash compactor room. 
And as you know, Cheryl, when you're dealing with a missing person's case, whether it's an elderly or it's a, a, a young child, you always try to do a complete search of the location first because more than likely that's where you find them. And unfortunately, they found them. The hunt was on, right? So here's where I also try to teach people who are looking at the cold cases to go back to the archives to find those old newspaper articles and newscasts because they tend to have so much more information than today's reporters, right? Today's reporters is a 22-second cycle. They need to get to the next story. Back in the day, the men and women that did this, they did long-form investigations. They were like detectives, and they had so much information that is uh, in their reports and on the newspaper stuff. It's amazing what you can find on it. There's unfortunately only about two articles that are archived, one in the news, uh, New York Times and one in, in the New York Post. They actually uh, go into some great detail. So they start naming names of suspects and they start talking about different things. They name the name of cops and, and the detectives that are working these things, which is all important for your investigation. But getting back into what we were doing, so for years, for a couple of years, we had one suspect narrowed down. It's unfortunate that most of the evidence in the case was destroyed. And we really were left with nothing to go on other than if we brought this person in and you know question them and then you hope that they make a confession, which is never in a good spot to be in. So we had chose at the time not to do that and continue started looking for it. We went to every police facility that we have that stored evidence in and we couldn't find this. I mean, we're talking about a case that was, you know, 20, 20 years old plus by the time we were looking into it again. And unfortunately, a lot of things happened. Look, the NYPD just had another big fire not too long ago that a bunch of evidence from cold cases was destroyed. So when you're dealing with a situation where you have so many cases, the likelihood of this happening is probability. And the issue that we also look into is that, and this is for the people who are out there investigating cases, whether you're in law enforcement or you're a civilian looking at these things. Most of the time, the suspect is named somewhere within the case file. It's a phenomenon that you just can't explain. At one point, the detectives had this person on their radar, and it was just like everything else. They're missing that one piece to establish the probable cause in order to make the arrest. This was something very similar to what we had faced, but we came from the school of looking at cases without reading the files first, right? So if you had an act of homicide, you wouldn't go into a file box and start reading all the reports. They don't exist. So we would do things such as the crime scene walkthrough with the photographs. But the other bonus that we had in the Bronx was that during the 80s, the district attorney had a program that they videotaped every crime scene. So this crime scene was actually included. So we were able to actually watch the crime scene in living color some, you know, 20 something years later, which was a bonus. And it's something that I've been preaching to police departments and DA squads everywhere I go that every homicide that happens should be videotaped, especially now when things are so cheap, you could do it with an iPhone. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. And I tell you one thing I've been preaching for years, incorporate drones, get that overall, you can see every possible entrance and exit, and then take that drone and do the eye level of where the perpetrator would have walked in or out. It's a, it's a tremendous gift that we have now. Absolutely. It's actually something I have actually included in the new book, right, about using drones in order to do these crime scenes, specifically outdoor crime scenes. But they're useful for indoor crime scenes. And people say, well, how? I mean, you can't be flying this thing in somebody's living room. No, it's about 
getting it above the ground almost looked like uh, you know that Google map view because this is how you find extended crime scenes. This is how you find areas where the suspect could have escaped from, and you could find all the different things because evidence could be all along that path that the person has fled. I mean, it's as simple as that. No question. And let me tell you, I've got a detective. He says, if you can use a drone to go into a building to search, to keep your officer safe, then you take that same drone and you can go in a crime scene inside the home or building first before you go in and do your walkthrough. It's absolutely one of the best tools we have right now for documenting. It's something I wish that uh, we had when we were doing this stuff because we had so many cases that could have benefited from this. So I try to talk to as many people as I can. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book too, because it gives me a wider search, a wider audience. But unfortunately, police departments are getting away from cold case squads because of the great, what I refer to as resignation and retirement. And there's not enough people left to, to handle these cases because they are long-term investigations. But uh, I tell you, with the two new federal laws that passed last year, they're in trouble if they don't have a cold case squad. You know, there was a, a law passed not long ago in Indiana that said a family that had a cold case that felt like their local jurisdiction didn't do enough could give the cold case to the state police. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, this is never going to work. They're going to be inundated. They're not going to be able to turn around in that room. They're going to have so many requests. So I agree with you that you've got to do it beforehand and you've got to get ready for some, before something like that becomes enacted because... I mean, buddy, <laughs> you're going to be overrun pretty quick. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. 
Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Going back to Charles and Stephen, now they had a two-year-old younger brother and lived with their mama on Valentine Avenue. Was there anything that stuck out to you from the beginning about the address or any similar transactions, anything that made you say, hey, wait a minute, I know something about this, you know, 2000 Valentine Avenue, or I know something about this general area. One thing about 2000 Valentine Avenue, it had a a checkered past. And one of the things as a cold case investigator that you must do is look for companion cases or cases that could be connected to yours because they can each hold a piece of the puzzle to the one that you're investigating. So we, we did all of that, right? So you figured with children being murdered, you would look at, we went through FBI's VICAP, right? The Violent Criminal Apprehension Program to identify other types of incidents where children were stabbed to death and, you know, left and, and kind of, uh, you know, staged in the way that they were. And unfortunately, it's not, it wasn't, it didn't come up with any other hits. So we knew we were dealing with somebody who this might have been their first time dealing with maybe children at this point, because in the Bronx back in the 80s and 90s, it was a very violent place. And I think we had about eight or 9,000 open homicides just from 10 years prior. So there were a lot of cases and you weren't dealing with situations where you had, you know, drug on drug crime, drug dealers killing each other, a gang killing each other, or when you had instances of where prostitutes were picked up and found murdered. I mean, you're dealing with two small children. So this was an outlier from the type of homicides that we were looking at. And that's what really attracted our attention to this. Yeah, I think it would have gotten my attention too, especially when they're not sexually assaulted. There were two at one time. They never left the premise of where they lived. I mean, all of those things are very unusual. And then I believe it was Stephen that had some defensive wounds. Exactly. We know that he was killed second because he saw his brother as he was coming down the staircase. And then she put up a fight at the bottom of the staircase. But you know as well as I do, anybody who has the high ground, especially if you're an adult against an eight-year-old, it's going to be rather easy to get control of them. And uh, he fought for his life for uh, for at least a minute or so there. And unfortunately, he was unable to get around him and get out. And the ironic part of this is if he was able to do it, that staircase led directly into the courtyard where somebody would have been able to hear his screams for sure. Now, most of the time, if somebody attacks you with a knife, they hold you in some way. They grab a part of your shirt or something where they're holding you to stab you. Do you think that there's any chance there could be DNA on their clothing? Well, there's always a chance, right? It's just unfortunately that uh, either it wasn't recovered at the scene and secured, because I said again, we didn't understand the value of that kind of evidence back then. Or it was vouchered and we were just never able to locate it. And the case file, like I said, was old and we had the duplicates of the duplicates on the forms. You know, when you type it and you make four or five copies, it's not ideal. And we had a special place where we would open up these cases because you never know what you were going to find in some of these boxes. I mean, we found boxes with bloody shirts in them. I mean, you name it. it. Because policing was much different back in the 80s and even the 90s. 
it was not something that they even understood to protect the integrity of that scene. There was a lot that had to be taught and a lot of training and a lot of understanding that you shouldn't walk through blood, possibly. Well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> you know. even in some of the videos that we've seen over the years when we were doing this stuff, you'd have detectives smoking cigarettes in the crime scene, you know, stamping them out in the sure. crime scene. And you're just sitting there shaking your head. You're like, my God, as a supervisor, you'd have a stroke to see what, the, what people would You would have a stroke. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And again, we did. It, it sounds crazy, but we didn't know. I mean, I remember even when I first learned the Lockhart principle in college, I was like, that sounds crazy. I don't take something and leave something. But then you work two or three of these scenes and you realize, oh, my Lord, that happens. You know, so it is real. And again, there's not enough training. And that's why things like your new book, the Cold Case Handbook, is so imperative. And a lot of the interviews that you do, because here's something else I noticed. And maybe it's because you're a professor and you're a teacher at heart. But even as you do interviews on the national news, you're teaching and you're training at a very basic level. I mean, I love the way you talk and the way you form, like, here's the scene. This is what law enforcement has done. And then you gradually go into, and this is what they could do. And this is what they should do. To me, and I just want to be very, very clear, you can't overstate the way you deliver a message. I do appreciate that, especially coming from you. And what I try to do is when I do a lot of TV stuff, and like I said, I try to explain. I just, I don't do the cop speak. I don't do the, you know, this is the detective speak and start naming acronyms that people don't know. I try to explain everything. But I try to also provide people with a solid foundation of where I'm coming from in certain aspects. If it's based on my experience, I'll say based on my experience. If it's something that is basically, you know, this is with scientific experience or scientific experimentation, and we'll call that out too. I have seen a lot of things lately from other individuals. I won't name anybody, but sometimes when they go on television, I kind of question like, you know, what are you doing? And it's just, there's a time and a place for everything. And I try to make sure that you just be real. Like I call it like it is too. I, I don't sugarcoat anything. I tell people I'm not a bakery. I don't sugarcoat anything. It, it is what it is. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of speak my mind, which has been probably my downfall in my lifetime too, because you know, certain people don't want to hear the truth. Well, I always tell people that they don't ask me, but uh, <laughs> I've had a couple of arguments with people <laughs> or other experts on TV too, which some of them are kind of fun. Well, I think from the hip, flat out, honest, here it is. You asked me for it. Those are the kind of things to me that are imperative on these cases, because if we talk around stuff and we don't flat say, hey, the fact that these children were not sexually assaulted matters and here's why it matters. The fact that they weren't taken from their home to another location matters. Here's why I can tell you that perpetrator is right there. We believe that is, this was personal, too. And not so much about mm -hmm, the kids, but, mm -hmm. you know, against the mother of the kids, it was, it's definitely something that uh, needed to be explored. I mean, you, like you said, there like a million things could have happened. It could have been kidnapped, asked for ransom. It could have been anything. But this was something shortly where they left the house, too. And this wasn't like, you know, they were coming home from school now. This, was, this happened on the way to school within the matter of minutes from them leaving the house because from when they come out of their apartment, and unfortunately, back in the 80s, we didn't have surveillance video. So if, God forbid, this happened today, there'd be video surveillance of that courtyard like there is today if you go over the 2000 Valentine Avenue. There's not only security, there's gates you can't get in. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens over there. 
from what we know. I mean, they they didn't scream. There wasn't anything like that. There obviously wasn't gunfire. There wasn't somebody that busted through there and ran through the courtyard bloody. So again, that leads me to think the person is on the inside. The person is right there. Right. Or somebody that the kids knew that they were comfortable with and that security guards knew. So they, if that person didn't live there, which is a possibility, that the guards knew who they were too because they were constantly visiting or coming to the place. We got, hey, how you doing? And then, oh, yeah, I'm going, okay, you know, and let's walk by. I mean, we know access control is really important, but unfortunately, sometimes people get lazy. And you see the same person every day, they come visit, and then it's, it becomes an automatic. Like, oh, here he comes and just hit the buzzer and let the person in. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Now let me ask you something. With the five... Burroughs, I know you worked Queens and I know you worked the Bronx. When you work a case, no matter what it is, homicide or missing person, do you work different in those different neighborhoods? No. Yeah, people don't realize New York City is made up of five counties or five boroughs, which we call them. So you have New York County, which is Manhattan, Kings County, which is the Bronx. You have Queens. You have Staten Island, which is Richmond County. And you have the Bronx. So I was the CEO of the NYPD's Bronx Cold Case Squad. However, because there was only three supervisors to cover five boroughs, I used to cover Queens and Brooklyn also. 
So we were spread pretty thin, but like everything else, you have detectives that you can trust, right? And that's one of the things that if any chief of police out there listens to this podcast and they're looking to put people in this unit, besides their ability to be able to investigate cases, you also have to have the ability of being trustworthy and that they could be left alone for time, for a long time sometimes without supervision, and they're going to do their job and do their work. That's an important aspect of picking people to work in a cold case squad is trust. That's critical. Yeah, it's trust. And so, yeah, we had one policy and procedure for everything. So, for instance, our definition of a cold case was just no more active leads. It didn't have a time frame on it. So I know a lot of places, yo, it has to be a year old or three years old before it could be declared. The nice thing about what we dealt with is we had a good relationship because we all worked at Detective Squad. So we knew a lot of people, including the supervisors, that when we would go look at cases, they would actually throw cases at us and say, yeah. Joe, take this case because we know who the we, we know who the purpose. I just don't have time. I'm, I'm like drowning in grand larcenies. Just do it. Clear it. We don't care who gets the clearance. That was a good part of it that helped us do well in our job, so to speak, and be able to be recognized from the work we did. But a lot of times it was detectives giving us good cases that they just didn't have the time to work on. Because New York City, we have a homicide squad, but they don't work really or catch active homicides per se. They're more of a supplemental group. They will investigate some cold cases or other things out there, but it's not like L.A., right, where there's a homicide and the homicide squad does everything. We run it by each detective squad, and we have 77 precincts, so we have 77 different detective squads, but everyone works and does the same thing. Well, see, I just didn't know if, you know, the different neighborhoods had like a different vibe, a different rhythm. Oh, they do. If the way you approach <laughs> was different. Well, that's what I was asking. Like, in other words, this neighborhood, you might could do a, you know, neighborhood canvas pretty quick. Whereas over here, they're not going to respond to a canvas. You're wasting your time. If there was another way to kind of do it, that's what I was, you know. The Bronx and Brooklyn were are a tough neighborhood to work in if you're the police. They're generally the two most violent, have the two most violent precincts uh, in there. So I've I've had the pleasure or unfortunate pleasure, however you want to look at it, as, as working, in, working as cops and, and as a supervisor in both boroughs too, doing patrol work. It's interesting because you have different cultures and people too. So, and each each town like has its own thing. So, when I worked in Brownsville, they, their motto was uh, "Never run, never will." You know, bed die, do or die. I mean, they all that's the kind of stuff that you're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of sure. yeah the mentality that you're dealing with too. And things have gotten probably, I'd say, worse over the last couple of years because of all of the the mass media about well, the cops and how bad they are and everything else. So. I'm, I'm imagining that it's even tougher today than dealing with it when I, than I was going back in that time frame. We have seen in Atlanta some neighborhoods that have transitioned completely. Um, they don't look the same. They don't have the same people. They don't have the same religion. They don't have the same background. It's nuts. So again, the way you approach now is completely different. You have to know who is in your town, who's in your zone, who's in your jail, and you know, who's on your beat so that you know how to approach, how to talk. It shouldn't matter if you're in Chinatown or Wall Street. You should be able to maneuver and get people to talk to you. And, and even even people who are hostile to you as the police. But, you know, you pulled up in certain neighborhoods. Everyone in the building knows you're there before you even, knock, you know, get into the door. So, you know, they see you, they see you pull up in a, you know, a black Chevy Impala, right? They know you're not the fuller brush man. They know you're not selling vacuums. 
you know, you step out of the car and everyone knows that the, that the cops are here, right? You'll hear the whistles and the and the thing, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that's going on. And, and, and at a certain point, you're like, listen, I'm not here for any of that stuff. I don't care. This is what we're here for. You know, and a lot of times, as you know, right? You know I mean, how you approach people, I don't care if they're gang members, they're drug dealers. Uh, everybody has information that they can help you with. Yeah, some don't want to. Some don't want to talk to you in public, and that's why you have a business card. And that's why on the back of those business cards, you should have the Crime Stoppers information, so that anonymous tip line, so that somebody who is verbally in the street saying, get away from me, I don't want to talk to you, get out of here, blah, 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 and you hand them a card, and they take it, right? After all that whole big show, then you know exactly what it was all about. Sure. So it's it's an important aspect of it, and you have to – it's like being a comedian. You have to work the room sometimes, and you, you have to know your audience, and, and like like you said – Going back to these two little boys, Charlie and Stephen, what is it about their case that still pulls you, still draws you? I've seen a lot of bad crime scenes, and to see children are always tough. So when you're watching these videos, you're also, you know, then you're taking these things into the memory. So I've been now retired 12 years, and I still have reoccurrences of those videos coming up in my head. And I'm talking about seeing lots of live crime scenes and then, you know, dealing with 9-11 aspects after the fact and, you know, doing the forensic side of that and sifting through all that stuff. This is what I still remember. And, you know, people would say, well, it's a case that you can't solve. You just need to let it go. And I, no, you just can't let these things go. So you still try to, you know, encourage those that are in, in charge now to keep on, you know, with the fight because – we have a strong indication. We have a name. We pretty much feel that this is the person, but we don't have enough evidence to establish probable cause. It's as simple as that. And unfortunately, that happens an awful lot in these cases. And, you know, a lot of times somebody will ask me, why are you going to highlight a case where you know it's never going to be solved or you can't do anything else about it? Here's why. Listening to you talk and telling people the importance of videotaping, people are going to hear you. And then somebody's going to go, yeah, why aren't we doing that? And then now everything has changed going forward. So you basically have Charlie and Stephen that are going to transform a department in the way they do business. And if they solve 10%, 15% more cases, if they have better video or flat have video to show a jury, you're going to have better conviction rates because you're giving the jury more. So what you're doing maybe it's not solving their case, but because of them and through them, solving hundreds more that would not have been. And it also could be about making sure that you secure your evidence properly in the old cases, make sure you identify where they are and if they're being stored properly. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times that we found uh, things with DNA on it back from the 80s and 90s that were secured in plastic. And then the whole DNA sample was ruined until we realized that, you know, years later that you had to put everything in paper. So like you said, yes, every time you every time you talk about something or, you know, you learn from it and you can improve things. And also in a case like this, if you're saying, yeah, why are you still bothering with it? You're never going to find it. Well, because there are things that can happen, right? Sometimes somebody can get religion or somebody's on their deathbed. And they want to now, you know, talk about it. And there are things that can happen. Maybe this individual or individuals told somebody and or confided in somebody. And now, you know what? Somebody down the road gets arrested and now they want that get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's just for this case. This is for any cold case. You know, hope – I always say hope is not a plan. But sometimes when you're dealing with cold cases, it's all you have. And you just have to just keep on 
hammering away, and then like everything else, the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Hope is not a plan, but sometimes it's all you get. That is fantastic. And you're, <laughs> you couldn't be more correct. You know, I got to tell you something funny, Sergeant. When I was a little girl, I told my mama that I was going to marry an Italian man. And she said, that's a good choice, you know, you know, and she goes, why? And I said, because detectives are Italian. So I wanted that last name. So to me, where I got that from, of course, was like TV and movies, like all of these New York City detectives, they all had those names, right? And so I wanted that last name, which my maiden name was not Italian. So I thought I got to go get that through marriage and then I will sound you know, like a detective. And uh, of course, I married a Scotsman, but it's okay. But every time I hear like you and other NYPD homicide detectives specifically speak, that childhood understanding comes back. But I will tell you, sometimes I hear people say, arguably, or perhaps, well, I will flat tell you that New York City homicide detectives are the best in the world. You spending any time with us today is a gift. And I just want you to tell us any last thing you want us to know or tell us about y'all's training or your homicide school, anything you want us to know to really showcase just what y'all are about because it's more than 9-11 and it's more than this brotherhood and it's more than this training. This is not something new. I think it's always been this way for NYPD. Well, we have, uh, unfortunately, a lot of experience in, in this kind of area, especially going back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And we had, when I first got into the detective squad, there were detectives there that had 40 years worth of experience on top of that. And we're talking about men and women that were, you know, hardcore 60s, 70s, 80s, through the riots and all the other things that were happening in New York City. And they were able to pass on that experience. And then over time, where we see people retiring just after 20 years, and then you know the resignations are up now because of all the stuff that's happening, you lose that experience. So the only thing that you can help replace that is with training. So we spent a lot of time developing courses and getting them accredited for people too, so that they can go to these classes. Specifically, we have a you know the, the death investigations course. We have a criminal investigations course that every detective who gets promoted has to go through it. And it's about trying to learn how to solve the toughest cases. And I would say dealing with cold cases is, is not only the toughest cases, but they're America's toughest cases. They're open for a reason. If it was that easy, they would have been closed already. So it's they need individuals who will not get deterred by anything. Uh, they, no matter what obstacle you put in front of them, they are going to try to you know go over it, go under it, or go around it. And it's, the, it's that's the bottom line about how you do it. So it's about tenacity. It's about persistence. And, you know, New York has that has the reputation of being, you know, the dog eat dog world. And I think that has a lot to do with that. Sergeant, thank you so much for not just coming on to Zone 7, but being a part of mine and reminding us the importance of talking about Stephen and Charlie. Y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote. It's important for these unspeakable things to be spoken of because they actually happened in this world. John Walsh. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.